So the way I, I do these interviews, I don't really think from as interviews because I don't ever, I don't prepare questions, I don't prepare answers. I just prefer to just start talking and, and letting things go where they where they where they will. Good, I if like that's that with you. Um, I did want to touch on a couple of things though because everyone knows your story at this point. It's been. Um, you know, your book sold millions of copies, Proof of Heaven, uh, which I've read. I haven't managed to get around to the other the other two yet, but I plan to well, at some point. Well, I think I think you will find both of them build the case much more strongly. I mean, from from my point of view, Proof of Heaven is a great big question mark. All it does is say, "Oh my God, these experiences are real. The universe is much grander than I ever would have thought from my kind of scientific study of it," um, and. Uh, but then where do we go with that? And so the, the second book, Map of Heaven, is all about the commonality of these experiences, how they've been with us forever, how similar they are across you know, continents and millennia, what have you. Uh, they're showing us a very real aspect of uh, the universe. And yet uh, materialist science has stood in the way of any kind of interpretation. Um, but the study of consciousness itself is uh, leapfrogging far beyond the limitations of uh, materialist science into a very exciting territory uh, that really shows the way to the future. I mean, the materialist, materialist science or physicalism, you know, that uh, I worshipped before my coma, and I do not use that word lightly. You know, uh, uh, conventional materialist scientific thinking, especially the, the non-quantum uh, version of Newtonian determinism, uh, went extinct 80 or 90 years ago, and yet uh, most people on Earth don't know that. Uh, they haven't been reading the literature, etc. So, But uh, the world is moving rapidly, far beyond the simplistic and bleak nonsense of materialist thinking, and that's why it's important to get this out to the world. Exactly. The and third book, are... by the way, Living in a Mindful Universe, you will find, I, I believe, to be an unbelievably uh, powerful... Um, uh, step beyond proof of heaven, because there actually are answers and the science is really leading the way to prove an emergent uh, reality that, that uh, supports the primacy of consciousness. That's exactly what this is all about. And how we look at the brain and mind uh, is very crucial, but uh, the emerging reality is very refreshing uh, and liberating for humanity, uh, because the old paltry fiction of materialist thinking, you know, birth to death, nothing more, we're just these physical bodies, uh, that's going the way of the dodo because all the evidence says, no, that's completely wrong. How could we have ever gotten so fooled into it? It'll, it'll shock future historians of science that we took you know, almost a century to even begin to glimpse what quantum physics was trying in a very straightforward way to tell us about the primacy of consciousness. And yet the resistance within materialist science which I basically attribute to, to kind of the birthright of the scientific revolution, you know, uh, several centuries ago, where if they uh, strayed too much from studying the natural laws of the physical world and got it all into mind or consciousness, they, they were likely to get burned at the stake. So, you know, that was burned into our uh, kind of our scientific DNA centuries back. And we're finally addressing the issue and paying the price for that uh, false assumption. And that's where the world starts to get far more interesting. Yes. And of course, these, these new revolutions in the scientific paradigm usually go over three steps, don't they? They usually start off with 
incessant ridicule and dismissal, followed by slow or slow um, integration of the new paradigm into mainstream, and then eventually everybody looks back thinking, how the hell could we ever have thought that in the first place? Yeah, I'm I'm convinced that uh, the the very few scientific critics out there that try and take me down uh, within the next five to ten years will be saying, well, we knew this all along. So... And there is a, of course, there's a record of what they actually thought, and no, they haven't thought it all along. And of course, there is a um, a decent number of, of people now that are beginning to to shift into this kind of more non-local mind thinking. I mean, the um, I recently had chats with Dr. Harold Valak, who mm-hmm. um, authored the Galileo Commission Galileo report. Commission. Yeah, and uh, Titus Rivas, who wrote the book "The Self Does Not Die," he sends his Hellos, by the way, to you. Well, uh, yes, he's a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful uh, investigator. Has done a beautiful job. I mean, that uh, you know, the self does not die is one of the most uh, amazing books uh, that supports the reality of kind of this bigger aspect of human experience. And uh, I am very grateful to uh, Titus and and Annie Driven and uh, Rudy Schmidt for uh, putting that together fantastic work which i would it highly is. recommend to everyone the self does not die it's mm. a very revealing book and i think what it does is opposed to just giving an account of a near-death experience it gives uh, in the english version you know over a hundred accounts of, of experiences right. that people may not have may not have known about when you right. think of near-death experience you think of yourself or um mary neal or other exceptional circumstances uh-huh. but nobody uh-huh. remembers the hundreds of others in between that nobody really has heard of and it adds weight and to you know, this that that actually brings up a very interesting point one of the greatest gifts for me is by going public with this you know by sharing my story i've given more than 500 presentations about my experience and about the scientific implications over the last 10 years uh, but at all these talks which have included more than 140,000 uh, audience members i get stories all the time and these are from many people who had never heard of a near-death experience, who were sharing their own experiences that might have happened 50 years ago, and yet they remember it as clearly as if it happened yesterday. And for me, that's just this army of kind of groundswell support from common folk out there, ordinary people. Just, that's why in, in our second book, uh, Map of Heaven, we said it's how science, religion, and ordinary people are proving the afterlife. To me, the ordinary people are just astonishing because they all are telling very similar stories. And these are people who are not prompted. Many have never read the literature or know anything about it. And when I hear these stories over and over and over again, all it does is keep reassuring me that we're on the right pathway. This is absolutely uh, the true pathway forward for all of humanity. Uh, That nonsense of physicalism, you know, scientific materialism, uh, it's complete and bleak nonsense. And, uh, you know, why it's persisted so long is an interesting question, but, uh, reality is it's going down because the truth, uh, leads us into this much richer territory. Mm. I mean, the thing about materialism is over the many, many years of its establishment, it has been incredibly useful to the natural world and to understand where we are. But it's now, as we can see, it's beginning to face limitations as more of these anomalous experiences are coming to light. And yeah. attempted explanations are being put forward, which account for some, perhaps, but there are. Well, I would say it's interesting. I mean, 
uh, quantum physics is very clear on this, you know, and in fact, in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, we make a strong argument for objective idealism. That is that uh, there's a mental layer of the universe, something that uh, quantum physicists are very familiar with. If you want to know more about that, just read Richard Kahn Henry's essay in the scientific journal Nature back in 2005. He was head of astrophysics at uh, Johns Hopkins and wrote a one-page uh, essay on the mental universe. Makes it very clear. It's a top-down form of causality. And for some quantum physicists get very confused. They think it's bottom-up causality. That is that you can look at the workings of uh, quarks and uh, protons, neutrons, electrons, photons, atoms, all of that and build up somehow and expect that that will explain all the events that occur in the universe at large and especially in human experience. Whereas, in, But to do that, most of them have to postulate infinite parallel universes to actually satisfy the math and physics. And to them, they just walk away and say, yes, infinite parallel universes, it makes perfect sense. No, it does not. And you can actually answer the question far better by simply assuming the primacy of mind. This is something, for example, that David Bohm and his interpretation of quantum physics had a notion of kind of a pilot wave that had uh, kind of mental characteristics. Uh, so, you know, physicists have danced around the edges of this for a while. Uh, but it's it's really time to move forward, and um, and and so in many ways it's not just idle curiosity, uh, you know, but it's a very demanding uh, situation to have to answer what's going on at the that root level of studies in quantum physics. And there was a renowned MIT professor who advised his students, "Shut up and calculate." <laughs> in other words, don't look behind the scenes at the actual experimental results, which will blow your mind. As Richard Feynman said, if anyone tells you that they understand quantum physics, all that you've learned is that you've met a liar. Uh, and that was certainly true back in the era of the heyday of, of materialism, but is the world of consciousness studies. Uh, and that is the, the, the tip of the spear of, of science or the consciousness studies themselves, which collaborate uh, a lot of things, like not only the quantum physics that implies primacy of mind, uh, but also uh, philosophy of mind. For example, the, the binding problem, which uh, uh, is very, very deep and absolutely comes to a much better answer when you, when you realize consciousness is unified. And we seem to be sharing this one mind and consciousness, and we seem to have kind of isolated uh, islands of you know, mental function, and yet telepathy is absolutely real. Uh, just read Guy uh, Leon Playfair's book on twin telepathy, where he estimates 35% of identical twins have strong telepathic connections, so strong that if one of them touches a hot stove, the other twin, a thousand miles away, might feel pain and develop a blister. So telepathy, very real, remote viewing, you know, psychic spy. This, uh, these, this is something when you study the field scientifically, it's beyond any reasonable doubt at all that it's absolutely real. These are human effects that have been um, experimentally demonstrated with odds of billions to one that the findings aren't absolutely real. Um, so mind is clearly something far bigger than just, uh, you know, some epiphenomenon of chemical reactions in my brain. And that's where uh, it gets very interesting. And that's where we really need to expand this. But it's, you know, not simply 
idle curiosity and, oh, you know, what happens when I die? And hopefully it's a, a good answer that I can glom onto. But in fact, realizing that the evidence and the truth lie in this direction and can be scientifically and objectively revealed. I don't want to go too far into the science of things because I'm not a scientist or a philosopher trained, so I, I don't want to get myself in trouble by make, making claims right. or anything like that. I've done that before with, with skeptics and got myself into well, a bit of bother. I can just tell you I am a scientist, and uh, the science is actually what will make this different from 5,000 years of listening to the occasional prophet or mystic share their journey than codifying it in religious orthodoxies and then seeing if, if other people's personal experiences would align enough for them to believe and have faith. And that's kind of the system we've been running with for a long time. But science is very powerful in that it brings some objective truth and verifiable uh, information. And once we get over the fact of saying that not every scientific bit of scientific knowledge is revealed only through you know double-blind, randomized, controlled, placebo trials, but that in fact, uh, much of the time, we have to be satisfied with the anecdotes offered up by the universe to put together the picture. Um, once we get to that point, then we can really start making tremendous progress. And that's where a lot of the current science of consciousness really has gained strength. That's right. And uh, one thing that really annoys me within the, the community, especially online, is the whole anecdotal evidence is not reliable evidence, um, which to me <laughs> seems ludicrous because everything in medical <laughs> yeah, that science is absolute insanity uh i mean th there is scientific evidence if you want it i mean for example i can i can uh share something that we go into in detail and in living in a mindful universe about and that is the, a recent spate of scientific studies using functional mri uh, and uh, in some cases magnetoencephalography these are very good techniques for looking at the physical activity of the brain itself the chemical reactions, the blood flow, all the things that indicate neuronal activity. And um, in fact, uh, the first paper of this genre I'm talking about uh, that I'm aware of came out in 2012. It's actually in the bibliography, A Proof of Heaven. But the uh, textual references to it were stripped out by some of the editors who didn't want too much science in the book. Uh, but the reality is, in that study from Robin Carhart Harris at Imperial College in London, uh, they were looking at people under the influence of psilocybin, magic mushrooms, a psychedelic, uh, and found to their shock that uh, functional MRI showed that the entire brain went dark under the influence of those drugs. Uh, in other words, no part of the brain was increasing activity to explain these amazing phenomenal experiences. Uh, but the brain was getting out of the way. Uh, and they had no idea how to interpret it. Christoph Koch, who's the head of the Paul Allen Research Science, Neuroscience Research Center in Seattle, wrote a beautiful essay in a Scientific American about those findings. You know, surprise of all surprises, your brain on these drugs goes dark. And then it was confirmed with other drugs, other centers in Brazil. They looked at DMT, dimethyltryptamine, active principle in ayahuasca. Uh, and of course, then the, the London group again did a study on LSD using both fMRI and magnetoencephalography. And the, the findings were so astonishing that even some of the scientists working on the papers didn't see the evidence that was right in front of their face uh, revealing um, this is the brain getting out of the way. This is the brain ceasing activity to allow mental activity to flourish. Uh, and, and to me, it struck home because I was a, a perfect example 
um, with my medical records. And there was a case report that came out on my medical records in uh, Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease in September 2018 that was as shocking as, as my original response to my medical records because my brain was effectively decimated. All, all eight lobes, the neocortex, was badly impacted by this severe uh, uh, meningoencephalitis from a gram-negative bacteria that should have killed me. Uh, and in fact, my doctors thought my survival uh, rating started at 10% that week. By the end of the week, I was down to 2% with no chance of recovery. And when I came back to this world, as they predicted, my brain was absolutely savaged. Uh, but it came back very quickly, literally hours and days, my language, my memories, my, I didn't even know my loved ones at the bedside when I first woke up, but all that came back. And within two months, all my memories and more were back from the experience. And so in this case report, they make it clear this is not really explicable by any kind of Western medical concepts. For one thing, the survival, that's not really a miracle, that's a 2% chance. But to have a complete recovery is something that's unprecedented in the me medical literature. And that's why case reports like this are so important. Uh, but, but what it does is it's exactly the same as what uh, these scientific papers on psilocybin, LSD, and DMT are revealing, that fantastic, phenomenal experience uh, is not necessarily generated by increased brain activity. Uh, and in many ways, in fact, in that first paper in 2012, they actually mapped the uh, shutdown of the brain versus visual analog scales of the extent of transcendental nature of the psychedelic experience and found that the more robust the experience, the more the brain went dark. I mean, these are amazing findings. So you, you can use science to help support all this, but you have to be open-minded. Um, so anyway, yes, it's, uh, right. for me, it's been a, a beautiful and fascinating journey and the whole world needs to get on board with this because it will make us a much kinder, gentler, uh, more tolerant and accepting uh, world of humanity here to support each other. And that's the most important thing because our materialist science has led to this false sense of separation, uh, which is nonsense. And uh, so we fight each other and it's a misinterpretation of Darwinian evolution, uh, thinking, oh, it's only the, you know, you've got to out eat your, your competitor. And, uh, you know, that's what it's all about. And most biologists tell you that's nonsense. It's success in the biological kingdom that's all about cooperation, collaboration. And that's one of the deepest lessons is coming out of this awakening about the true nature of consciousness and of human existence. Hmm. And you're right when you say that um, there is evidence to suggest that when the brain is shut, uh, shut down, is, is in the case of when uh, acted upon by psilocybin, that the mind is then able to kind of act more naturally and more lucidly. Um, we see that also with the experience of terminal lucidity. In, in patients, especially recorded with dementia. Um, now, I, I recently had an interview with a, or did an interview with a, with a s more sceptical individual who, um, again, was was pondering these possibilities for cases like near-death experience and terminal lucidity, which did get me thinking because I, I try not to be, I, although I'm more on kind of your side of the fence with the argument, uh, I try to be as both-sided as possible. So I, it got me thinking, um, especially with the near-death experience, his um, suggestion was that perhaps, and I want to put this to you because as a neuroscientist, I'd imagine you'd know a lot more about this than I, well, certainly you'd know a lot more about this than I would. 
that possibly these experiences are taking place as a result of unconscious experience that one's having whilst the brain is still active um, that they're receiving from uh, tactile or visual or audio information which is then replayed after consciousness is retained or brought back rather after consciousness is returned and then replayed in the brain as if it was conscious so although this information was received unconsciously the experience is then played out once the brain's back online as if it was conscious but of course well, how would look, you tell Titus, uh, uh... You know, the self does not die. That book uh, is a pretty strong refutation of that kind of nonsensical thinking. I mean, there are all these examples of veridical perception and knowing that completely defies our normal channels of knowing. So how did that kind of sneak into the unconscious? Only when you have a big understanding of unconscious and conscious that is not locked inside of one's little little brain, uh, do you start to glimpse where that's all really going? But that kind of, you know, it, one thing that needs to be clarified, um, I came back from my journey and realized that true, rabid, open-minded skepticism is beautiful. It is a gift. It is the way forward in all of this. And in fact, if you know enough about the mind-body question and the scientific data supporting all the points of view, the first position you re re reject is completely ridiculous is materialism or physicalism that pretends that you can uh, create consciousness by some arrangement of physical matter. Uh, so it's important to point out the difference between skepticism, healthy, open-minded skepticism, which uh, I had to have to begin to address my uh, issues and understanding and come to a, a trustworthy interpretation versus uh, what I think you're really talking about there with, with that, your previous uh, interview, and that involves the pseudo-skeptic. Uh, the pseudo-skeptic uh, has already made up their mind. They're very prejudiced. Uh, there's no amount of scientific data, empirical data, or rational argument that will change their mind at all. And in fact, I would say for some of my pseudo-scientific critics out there who you know, might have a PhD or whatever and claim to have uh, some understanding of this, that in fact, they're really pseudo-skeptics. They have no interest in getting to the truth. They have you know, this uh, kind of big bully pulpit uh, on social media or in their books or whatever, and they've got way too much to defend uh, by be being uh, you know, materialist fundamentalists. Uh, or fundamaterialists is one of my uh, good friends and colleagues, uh, Neil Grossman of Chicago. He calls them fundamaterialists. But uh, it's important for people to realize that true open-minded science uh, is wide open to these possibilities and, in fact, is rapidly converging on some much richer uh, and more complete ways of understanding reality than all of that uh, uh, bleak nonsense that I used to worship before my coma, and it is high time for the world to move beyond that. But let's let's get away from this, uh, you know, people out there who were pseudo skeptics and totally closed-minded, trying to pretend that they have an open mind about any of this. The big problem is once somebody really starts investigating the material, they start uh, getting in line with the, the current awakening and scientific revolution. So in general, I would say those, especially now, uh, you know, after the last decade or so of intense uh, uh, progress along these lines, um, to still be claiming that scientific materialism is correct. And you're leaning on some very flimsy data and on very thin ice. 
Uh, and it basically just shows a position of willful ignorance. I would agree. I mean, I'm not religious in any way um, in terms of any mainstream religion, I, but I take the approach that I follow the data that I've seen through my interpretation wherever it seems to lead. And to me, the, uh, the majority of, of the positions that I've seen, especially from, as you say, the pseudo-skeptic slash skeptic movement is that they're presupposing materialism is already correct, correct. and therefore no other interpretation can be can be correct regardless of the, the data shows that maybe this materialism paradigm needs to be revised at, at the minimum well i think you're right it, it you know and it works uh, it works fairly well as long as you don't start talking about you know uh, exotic human experiences and uh um you know kind of the uh, of consciousness. And if you deal seriously with the relationship of brain and mind, which I do, I'm a neurosurgeon. Uh, I pay a lot of attention to that. I also have a tremendous interest in physics and cosmology. Um, so, you know, these are all very important things to bring into the mix, but, um, you know, the evidence is so strong. I mean, I often put out there in my talks and presentations and interviews that by the year 2028, uh, and that was 10 years from when I first started making this prediction in 2018. But by that time, no self-respecting, well-read, scientifically-minded person on Earth will doubt the reality not only of the afterlife uh, and a primacy of consciousness, but of reincarnation, because the scientific data for reincarnation is really overwhelming. Uh, I mean, once you, you read it and become familiar with it, there's just no way to explain it other than we need a much bigger model of mind and consciousness and reincarnation is absolutely real. And it's not just kind of the theoretical questions and empirical questions that have been answered, for example, by University of Virginia. And for your listeners who want to learn more, go to uvadops.org, University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies. There's a wealth of information, more than six decades of study showing all the evidence for non-local consciousness, for reincarnation. And it's all rigorous scientific investigation. Uh, the evidence is there, um, you know, and so if, if people today claim that, that uh, you know, consciousness is created by the brain, um, the onus on them to try and prove that, good luck, because in fact, uh, once you start studying things like telepathy, remote viewing, out-of-body experiences, uh, shared death experiences, which are just like near death, but occur in physiologically normal people. And they're very common. I promise you, I hear them all the time from my audiences, people who have gone along on the journey uh, as a bystander soul, even to witness a full-blown life review in a loved one before they come back to this world. Shared death, all the you know 2,500 plus cases of past life memories in children where reincarnation is the best explanation in most cases. Uh, it's just stunning. 35% of those 2,500 cases, the child actually had a birthmark corresponding with a lethal wound of a prior lifetime. Uh, and it's all not just idle philosophical curiosity, because in fact, there's also the world of transpersonal psychology. This is a very practical application of the notion of reincarnation, thanks to the brave work of Dr. Stan Groff, Dr. Michael Newton, um, Dr. Um, uh, Brian Weiss, uh, and, and all of their followers and, and disciples, uh, more than 100,000 people around the world have probably benefited from hypnotic regression and from uh, uh, psychological 
psychological psychiatric intervention that that acknowledged uh, uh, past lives as contributing to the issues we face in this life. In fact, I recently saw a paper. I, I'm sorry, I didn't read the whole thing, so I can't really quote from it. But it was from the University of Virginia group, Jim Tucker, and it had to do with looking back through their database. Um, you know, especially uh, it looking at past life past lives that were of an opposite gender. And then look at the correlation of transgender identity in this lifetime. It's a very interesting paper with a lot of uh, kind of fascinating conclusions. So in other words, we can make much better sense of our lives when we understand we're much bigger beings than just something that's here, birth to death in this one little physical body. But we all have been here before. There, There is a, 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 a very strong pattern of programmed forgetting, as I call it where memories are not allowed in completely. Uh, you know, we'd like to think, well, if I've had all these past lives, why can't I remember it? Well, part of the process is that beyond age five or six, as Jim Tucker will tell you, those memories start to uh, get covered over. Uh, and so it's only in later life with hypnotic regression that they can be revealed again. But just like we don't remember our dreams, and yet dreams and sleep are crucial, not just for humans, but for animals going way down the evolutionary chain, if you don't sleep and dream for a few weeks, you'll be dead. I mean, it's very crucial to life. We really don't understand yet why that is the, the case, but the reality is it's very important. And yet we don't necessarily remember the content of those dreams in our conscious memory. Uh, most of us have to work to remember dreams. And, you know, we can remember when we first wake up, but if we don't work hard to commit it to memory then and there, they're gone. Why is that? Well, likewise with these memories from past lives. And all I can say is it just appears the system is set up that way, that our higher soul can know more. And this is why I'm a giant fan of, of meditation. I've used sacred acoustics meditations uh, daily, an hour to a day for the last 10 years. I've used them to return to my near-death experience. I've used them to resolve conflicts with others, higher soul to higher soul through meditation. Uh, it's really a very powerful technique. Uh, so. Uh, those of your listeners who want to learn more about that, go to sacredacoustics.com. And that's my, my life partner in this. Karen and I give lots of workshops around the world in meditation. But it's a way of opening our mind to kind of higher soul and primordial mind in ways that I believe strongly engender our abilities to heal. You know, placebo effect is widely acknowledged as a, a, a very real effect. It's been used in medicine for six decades officially to compare to any new treatment or, you know, the double-blind placebo-controlled trial is simply a reflection by the medical profession telling us that our beliefs have tremendous power in healing us. And uh, getting back to that case report on my medical records, uh, the peer reviewers of the journals uh, who were uh, reviewing that case report were as mystified as I was that that medical record led to a complete recovery. It completely violates everything in Western medicine. There are no cases like that in the literature. Uh, and so the peer reviewers asked the physicians, how do you explain this miraculous recovery? And they were aware of Anita Morjani, Mary C. Neal, and other cases of miraculous, inexplicable healing, uh, well-documented in medical cases. Um, and, and so they basically said it was the spiritual content of my NDE that allowed such a profound healing. I mean, what more do we need, people, to realize that we have tremendous power? And our beliefs, the beliefs of the kind of materialist scientific community, are falsely limiting. 
question those beliefs and start to meditate, uh, start to go within and learn how really the deepest and most profound lessons of near-death experiences and of, of that kind of, of human experience uh, is to teach us how to live these lives here on earth more fully. Uh, it, it's really not so important, oh, what happens when we die? But much more so, okay, who am I as this bigger reincarnating being that is working towards, uh, I, I would say, essentially, it's not a blind, you know, get off the wheel of, of reincarnation version that, uh, for example, uh, might be uh, present in some Buddhist or, or other religious interpretations, but it's much more one of reincarnation towards a goal, towards oneness with the divine, towards that Christ consciousness or a mega point that... Um, the French uh, uh, paleontologist and Jesuit priest uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin wrote his beautiful book about the phenomenon of man, written in the mid-20th century. Go to gutenberg.org and download that one for free, and you will be on a fantastic journey because uh, uh, I think that Pierre Teilhard de Chardin was definitely onto something big, and he was looking at evolution in a much bigger sense than kind of the materialist science that was at the time kowtowing to uh, kind of a false interpretation of Darwinian evolution. But he had a big vision for where it was really going. And I think that's much more attuned to the reality I see now with all the evolution of consciousness and the awakening of humanity that is imminent in the next few years because of exactly what we're talking about. Okay, brilliant. Uh, I'd like to get onto your NDE specifically because um, I have a, a few questions about it um first of all so bacterial severe bacterial meningitis which is what you suffered um could you just explain explain briefly how that results in complete cortical shutdown well the thing is those bacteria in my case it was e coli and e coli almost always if it causes meningitis it it's in a newborn it's very rare to have E. coli meningitis in anybody older than three months of age, unless they had a neurosurgical procedure or something where the E. coli was introduced into their brain. Now, I, I, my doctors face that extreme mystery. Why did I have this very rare case? Uh, and not only that, what we do know is gram-negative, which is the broad category of E. coli, gram-negative bacterial meningitis is about the worst kind you can have. It's absolutely 100% fatal if untreated. And even in treated cases, it's, you know, 60 to 80% of them are absolutely wrecked. And certainly people who spend any significant time more than, you know, an hour, a few hours uh, in coma, and I spent seven days in coma, you don't come back from that. Uh, it's, it's really astonishing. The problem is these bacteria double, um, you know, every 20 minutes or so. And when you do the math, uh, you can have one bacterium there now, and in 12 hours, you're going to have several uh, tens of billions uh, and so they very rapidly overwhelm everything. Uh, in my case, my cerebrospinal fluid glucose level, you know, normally in you or me now, it would be 60 to 80. Uh, in somebody with severe bacterial meningitis, it might be as low as 20. Uh, my CSF glucose was one. None of the uh, consultants on my case had ever heard of that severe a case. It, these things, I mean, they ran out of glucose, so they were eating my brain, destroying my neocortex. The CT and MRI scans revealed all eight lobes of my brain to be affected. There was no little island of cortical activity that might explain any kind of conscious awareness because every bit of my neocortex was taken down. Not only that, my brain stem was badly damaged even from the first day forward. 
uh, my extraocular movements were off, my uh, uh, cortical reflexes were in a very bad shape, my Glasgow coma scale, which in you or me now would be 15, in a corpse it would be three, anything below nine is deep coma. And that whole week I basically spent between uh, six and seven. In fact, there were times when I was probably down to a five. Uh, and, and that is not a brain, especially when you have demonstrated all eight lobes to be affected. They can give any conscious experience at all. And yet I had the most robust, profound, ultra-real, multivaried, meaningful, uh, never-to-be-forgotten experience I've ever had in my existence. And that demands some kind of explanation. Initially, I thought it had to be a vast hallucination, but that's back when my neuroscience knowledge and all that had not yet come back. And I was just uh, barely uh, kind of waking up for this incredible onslaught. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the reality is that recovery demands some explanation. And uh, I would say it has a tremendous amount to do uh, with the spiritual content of my journey. And uh, to come back to tell this tale, uh, I think that is an important part of it all. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why once I realized what had happened and the book Proof of Heaven ends where I had... Uh, an event in my life, uh, in my personal life, four months after my coma, involving a picture, uh, you know, a photograph of someone who was very important to me, and yet I didn't know who she was. And uh, so that part uh, really should get your attention. And that's what drove me, especially with the, the medical records and all that. I knew something absolutely fantastic had happened. There were deep lessons there, but I was just trying to understand them all. And that's where, of course, living in a mindful universe goes a long way. And I would also encourage uh, your listeners, you don't even have to go buy that book. If you go to ebenalexander.com, that's E-B-E-N alexander.com, uh, right there on the welcome page, there'll be a little banner wiggling in your face, your 33-day journey into the heart of consciousness. Well, jump on board with that. Uh, leave your first name and email address, and uh, you'll have 33 days of emails of the main topics of that book coming out. Um, and uh, it's a community of more than 8,000 people around the world who have taken that course. It has a translate button, so all the uh, different languages, people are participating, helping each other, leaving their own experiences. It's forming a beautiful community, uh, and you can get on board completely for free with all of that and, and really get into this exciting revolution uh, in consciousness. Uh, and the other thing, an extension of that, is something called InnerSanctumCenter.com. And that is something Karen and I are working on right now to help develop a community, a global community to help support each other through these very trying times of the COVID-19 pandemic uh, with, uh, you know, basically everybody around the world ordered to stay home. I mean, this is unprecedented uh, and it's, it's all for very good reason. Uh, but there's a lot of anxiety and fear about this. And so InnerSanctumCenter.com and that 33-day journey uh, a lot of our work is really to help people deal with this now. It's a perfect time to start developing a practice of deep, powerful, effective meditation of going within and exploring that relationship with primordial mind. Uh, and this is a beautiful way to do it. That's why we're, we're giving this out. Karen and I are doing webinars uh, every other Thursday, uh, live webinars to kind of help bring people up to speed on that. You can get to those webinars at innersanctumcenter.com. So it's really uh, about, I see the, the pandemic is actually being a kind of a gift of desperation, uh, just like you find in addiction and alcoholism studies. People hit a bottom where things are just too bad to keep going. 
and they either go down to die beyond that point or they bounce off the bottom and they start recovering from it. And in fact, this pandemic gives us the collective gift of desperation. And it's one that I believe will bring us together and make us much stronger, much smarter, far healthier as we emerge from it all. But we need to grow into the higher souls we came here to be and take responsibility for our choices. Uh, and that is one of the most important lessons of this uh, kind of growing uh, awareness of consciousness. Because in fact, when you look at it, uh, strictly speaking, that materialist mindset that I worship before coma would let everybody off the hook. It said that nobody's conscious, that it's chemical reactions in the brain, electron fluxes, nothing more. Uh, so in, in essence, you take that materialist argument to the nth degree and it says, uh, we're all automatons. Nobody's responsible for their actions at all. I mean, what's with our judicial system and our penal system? I mean, let everybody go free if we're all automatons like that. It's nonsense. It's high time we took responsibility for our choices. We're all in this together. We're bound through that consciousness uh, with this in intense binding force of love, compassion, kindness, when necessary, forgiveness. This is all about shifting our dynamic and our very way of thinking and being and seeing ourselves. That's why it's absolutely yeah. crucial that we grow into these higher souls now. And meditation is a beautiful way to start that. But of course, at the end of the day, it really boils down to taking action in our lives, taking care of the least, the last, and the lost, and showing real responsibility for ourselves and for others because we're all in it together mm -hmm. very important message that i think a lot of people should start to take very seriously now especially as you say in amongst this pandemic which will as i know since i suffer from anxiety and depression does cause a lot of mental suffering for a lot of people right it, um, it certainly is and it's high time we move beyond that and we can do that we can use this time at home and uh kind of a forced a physical separation to enhance our uh, kind of mental and, and conscious engagement with others and with the universe at large. It's a perfect opportunity. And when people realize your consciousness is not created in your brain, but that the brain is a filter, that it allows primordial consciousness in, then you start to see the value of meditation, of going within. It actually is a way to get out into this universe, to explore and more broadly uh, examine our relationships, uh, the information that's pertinent to us, and how we can effectively change all that for the better and bring ourselves into wholeness and healing. Brilliant. So something I'd like to touch upon, if you're okay with it, if not, not a problem, is the some of the um, rebuttals to your experience in, for example, the Esquire article, mm -hmm. which, I, which I've read, and I've also read Robert Mays' rebuttal to that. Mm -hmm. um, so it was written by Luke... Dittrich. Dittrich. In, was it... It wasn't long after your book was released, was it? 2013? Well, it came out in, um, in the summer of 2013. Mm -hmm. And it essentially outlines um, some parts of, of the experience which seem to not collaborate with your report in the book and with some things from your past that we don't have to get into. That's not a problem. Um, so I just want to, because I don't like getting information from a third party without 
going to the people themselves, which is why I wanted to talk to you specifically, because I want to hear it from, you know, I want to hear the facts from the experiences themselves. I think that's only fair. Well, I think the, the important thing to point out, I mean, I'll start with the fact that I, I kind of feel badly for Luke. I think he, I tried to warn him at the very end that he was uh, walking off a cliff there. He came in the door pretending he was an old family friend because his uh, grandfather had in fact been very close friends with my father. Both of them were neurosurgeons. And that's how Luke kind of got in the door. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, he had a, a fantastic world changing story to share, but it was not the set of lies and complete distortions of truth that he shared. It was the real story I was trying to share with him, but he couldn't see it because he was so intent on taking me down. And he made up all these uh, false allegations, uh, for example, saying that I was, um, fired from two medical institutions in Boston, and yet the facts reveal very clearly that I left both those institutions after disagreements with bosses, and it, there was nothing about any wrongdoing on my part at all. In fact, uh, um, in, um, for example, in the, in the second case, when I left UMass, that chairman of surgery tried to uh, uh, you know, blame me for improper neurosurgical performance in the face of full support from all of my neurosurgical colleagues, not only internally, but externally. Uh, and, and this is uh, all stuff that Luke was aware of. And he just, there was no interest on him, his part. He didn't even want to interview uh, my, my former spouse and my son who were in the house when he was there for the interview. He had no interest. And I promise you what he drilled together there is an absolute fiction. Um, there are other issues relating to malpractice that are completely uh, wrong. I mean, his, uh, uh, his take was absolutely wrong. There's a much more complete explanation on my website, ebenalexander.com, especially in the FAQ section uh, about malpractice. Uh, but essentially, the picture he portrayed was the exact opposite of how I behaved in the case. So, you know, yes, the Esquire article is all about, you know, someone who is prone to deceit and lies and distortions. But that's not Eben Alexander. It's Luke Dittrich. Uh, in fact, uh, he was um, called out uh, after he wrote his book, Patient HM, uh, by more than 200 scientists who wrote an article in Scientific American uh, about a New York Times uh, excerpt from his book where they challenged uh, his complete abuse and distortion of the truth uh, about Suzanne Corkin, uh, who was uh, one of the investigators primarily involved in the uh, study of Patient HM. So, you know, that Esquire article was a takedown hatchet piece. Uh, he and David Granger, the uh, uh, Esquire editor at the time, were hoping this was a new experiment for them. They put it behind a $1.99 paywall. They thought by attacking a book that w had more than 2 million sales in the U.S., uh, Proof of Heaven, uh, you know, was on the New York Times bestseller list for more than 90 weeks. It spent more than 42 weeks at number one position on the paperback nonfiction bestsellers. It was the um, it was the number seven uh, nonfiction book on the New York Times list for the entire year of 2012. It was the number two book, nonfiction bestsellers, New York Times list uh, in 2013. It's published in more than 40 languages around the world. This book hit the world with a gigantic resonance because it awakened a memory in people of what they remembered in their own existence as souls, as truth. And yet uh, that uh, Esquire article did tremendous 
damage to my reputation. Uh, and uh, it's been debunked. You know, the Robert Mays article on the IONS website uh, also has, there are several other papers that have been published in the Journal of Nervous, I'm sorry, the Journal of Near-Death Studies um, by Robert Mays that completely destroy Dittrich and his, uh, all of his uh, nonsensical distortions and, and complete abuse of the truth. Uh, and it's, it's really a shame. And, and the other tragedy is Wikipedia, as much as I've tried to alert the editors there, the falsehoods in that Esquire article and how it completely distorts information about me and my life and career, they're basically participating in defamation and libel in an ongoing fashion. And it's something that really should come to an end because it's a, a, a travesty to uh, distort uh, a story that's very important to many in this world. Uh, and in fact, in many ways will help lead us into brighter times. And yet that little cheap uh, attempt at a paywall by Granger and uh, Dittrich, um, you know, and they're laughing all the way to the bank. I'm sure they can't even imagine they're still getting lots of hits on that article because there are a lot of hits and there's a lot of hits uh, going to that um, Wikipedia page. But, you know, Wikipedia, themselves. If you go to Wikipedia and put in reliability of Wikipedia, they'll tell you, no, there, this is a, an encyclopedia edited by the common man where everybody can edit it. Do not take it as a source of facts. And in fact, uh, you know, in, in scholarly and academic work, if you reference Wikipedia, you're blacklisted immediately. It's, it's, it's bogus. And yet, unfortunately, in this world, you know, people will Google Google, there's Wikipedia, they believe it, and, uh, you know, it, it's cheap, it's fake, it's wrong, um, and um, I feel badly for Dittrich. Yeah. And Poor we'll guy, say... he stepped into a bear trap, rolling off a cliff. And I think, you know, if you Google him, for somebody who was an award-winning uh, magazine article writer before, he seems to have disappeared from the face of the earth, and I, I hope he's okay, but... Uh, you know, I think he killed his career. It was a suicide bombing that damaged me a lot, uh, but I, I don't think it did him much good at all in the long run. I think he potentially, I don't know, maybe he can reach out to us and let me know, but uh, hmm. I think he blacklisted himself. And I'd say, you know, for anybody that has read the Dietrich article, they'll, they're going to walk away with the impression that you're somebody who, due to um, malpractice and whatever, lost his job as a neurosurgeon and therefore had to write this book as a way of, of developing finances. And that's the that's the outlook people have who've only read the Dietrich article. I'd say to them, please go and read the Robert Mays as well. Yeah, read the, get the bo get both sides. IANDS.org. Put in the search term Mays Alexander, and you'll quickly get to Robert Mays' uh, blistering, eviscerating rebuttal that just rips Dietrich and Granger to shreds. In fact, I think Esquire magazine, if they were going to be a reputable uh, kind of trustworthy organization with integrity, they would immediately pull Dittrich's article and replace it with a stub that says they were wrong, their fact checkers uh, didn't check any facts at all, that in fact it's a distortional, defamatory, libelous piece, and that they distance themselves completely from it. That's mm. what I would advise. Or at least have a link to that Mays article so that people are aware that there is a rebuttal to this that shows 
two sides because otherwise you've just got one side that's not a fair way of looking right. at it and i think most people who've read um you know proof of heaven have seen me in interviews they'll realize that you know the character being portrayed in dittrich's fable is dittrich he's a liar he's a distorter it's not me mm. I don't particularly have a, an opinion on Dietrich because I, I can't really. Um, but the one thing that did make me initially sceptical about that article is when he mentions about um, the Dalai Lama and his comments. I watched that video before I read that article. <laughs> Boy, did and he get it, caught. Yeah, that that was nothing like what he was portraying. Nothing that the well, Dalai Lama Dietrich was saying. Well, that's for you. So, yes, um, he does tell a wonderful story of lying and deceit mm, and uh, profiteering. But it's him. Well, whether it was intentional or not, I can't say. I don't know the guy, um, and it would be unfair. It'd be unfair to comment. So, fair enough. So, but that that's that's the case anyway. Um, so, yeah. Thank thanks for talking about that. I appreciate that it might be not something you'd like to talk about. Well, um, I would just like to get the truth out there because the truth is very important, and the truth will help a lot of souls. I mean, our world is in deep trouble. And a lot of people are very anxious. And what I have to tell and share can help people. So it's really a shame that that article is still out there. Mm. So how would you respond to the whole um, report from Dr. Laura Potter, who I know she wants to distance herself from, from this now? Well, all respect basically her. her report's very clear, although... You know, she was so destroyed. And, and believe me, she, uh, oh boy, she does Bless not her. have a very good feeling about Dittrich and Esquire. She, I cannot give you the words she would be saying about them, but she got uh, misrepresented. Makes me furious to think of how they treated her. But um, no, they, they completely misquoted her, completely distorted things she said. Uh, they tricked her into certain things. I mean, uh, it was. Uh, a perfect example of exactly what you think. We've been talking for the last 10 minutes about, you know, that, that, that article is all about distortion, deceit, and lies, but it's about Dittrich doing every bit of that. And, and the way he treated uh, Dr. Potter is just horrific. And I can't go into it because it's a private matter uh, uh, that she shares, but I promise you, she, uh, uh, <laughs> she feels a, a lot worse about Dittrich than I do. I mean, I really tried to save him at the end. He, he kind of misquoted him. He said, as your friend, you know, don't do this. Well, I was saying, as your friend, I'm advising you, don't do this. Hmm. But he did it. And for anybody that's maybe um, researching your case themselves, who hears the floor reporter, I just say, please don't, you know, leave, leave her alone because she doesn't want anything to do with this anymore as far as i'm aware please do so please Laura please alone. respect her please respect her privacy right it's been a very ugly experience for her because of dittrich yeah, and your experience itself the the main meat of the experience um it started off with the what you call the earthworm's eye view which you believe to have been the consciousness available to your brain at that point um as I, that's the impression I got from, from the, right. the book, um, followed by an experience of kind of a heavenly realm with a, a spinning orb of light, which you'd call God or Om, which essentially I believe are just labels to the consciousness, nature of consciousness. Um, mm -hmm. So 
what was that? You say that you had no understanding of who you were prior to that experience, and you were just kind of. A, a, it's coming back to language. You were just it. You were just being a, a speck of awareness. Yeah. How? And uh, yeah, it was it was an absolutely astonishing journey. Um, and of course, I describe it in great detail in Proof of Heaven, and have told it uh, on uh, hundreds and hundreds of interviews. But uh, I think that the main points to make is it was astonishing. It was way too real to be real. And and part of that is. Uh, the understanding that in this world, we see through our eyes, we hear through our ears, we have a brain that's actually, you know, damping down our conscious awareness to this tiny little trickle. Um, but in those realms, none of that is still there. You become huge swathes of the reality being presented to you. In fact, for me in the core realm, you know, ascending through that kind of earth-like gateway valley, but through those angelic choirs into the core, uh, the entire higher dimensional multiverse throughout all of eternity had been shrunken down as this tiny complex oversphere as part of the lessons I was to be taught. I mean, none of this really uh, is like the language I used to describe it. It's far richer and more powerful and profound and interrelated and meaningful and all that than that. It's really astonishing. And of course, this is what echoed with me when I read so many other near-death experiences, independent of people's religious beliefs, across all continents and cultures, across millennia, as uh, I sensed a really deep kind of commonality uh, between them and uh, uh, in kind of the spirit and the essence of what they were sharing and into how they were uh, in encountering kind of higher soul and life reviews and all that kind of thing. And um, it's, it's just the exact opposite of what anyone who believes in materialist science and brain creates consciousness would encounter. And that's why it's so beautiful that there are literally millions and millions of such experiences out there. Um, and I know that not just from the literature and from the internet and from studying these, but from all those people who come up and talk to me after my talks who share their experiences. I mean, this is the what is the nature of human experience. And to dismiss it as of some hallucination and, well, we, we don't want to do the hard work of understanding them because that's hard work. Well, guess what? Luckily, uh, these days, scientists are studying them. And the, the picture that comes out of it is one that's very reassuring and affirming. Uh, so it is something that uh, I would highly re recommend all of us to, to get into. But... Um, I can't emphasize enough the profound sense of truly being home in that realm. You know, that, that is very important to stress. So many people are afraid of death. And yet, even in our materialist uh, kind of body and uh, addicted, physical addicted culture, it's amazing how the vast majority of people who have experienced that are very willing to let it go and stay there and embrace that spiritual home because it is so comforting and so beautiful and based in that love. And that's why they come back and never have anything to fear about death itself because they've already tasted it. And they realize, no, it's not oblivion. Um, now, there are, uh, you know, for anybody who wants that sugar-coated little fairy tale ride to pearly gates and uh, angels playing... Uh, uh, harps on clouds, that's not really what's going on here. And there are some, uh, uh, you know, there are darker aspects to it. My earthworm eye view, if I'd come back just from that, I would have had a hellish NDE. But I would say, you know, point out here that the numbers on near-death experiences are something like 95% plus are very positive. Uh, and even those that we often count as negative or hellish, 
from my point of view, are simply incomplete. Uh, they're basically life reviews where somebody had handed out a lot of pain and suffering to others mm. uh, and then had to experience the business end of that yeah. in their life review. The life review is in many ways a very neutral kind of presentation of life lessons from our lives to help course correct us before we reincarnate to the next life. But um, given that most of us would rather be treated nicely and kindly and lovingly than not, uh, the life review can be quite ugly for people who have have been, you know, carelessly uh, uh, dispensing lots of pain and misery to others in a selfish fashion in their lives. And then they have to face up to that because a life review is most often described as being experienced as the emotional point of view of those around you affected by your uh, choices and actions. So you don't experience it as yourself. And that's why, for example, Hitler would have, you know, kind of a tough life review, 53 million dead, uh, plus all the other souls who knew about uh, uh, his role in those transgressions, and it goes up to the current time of people disturbed by the Holocaust, etc. Yeah. And and Hitler would have to go through every bit of that because the life review, in many ways, is kind of a balancing uh, to kind of help bring things uh, back back uh, more towards that loving progression of humanity and of sentience throughout the universe. Uh, it's not just about humans, uh, and it's not even on Earth. I mean. Uh, other animals have a very rich kind of soul life, and they have reincarnation too, from my from my viewpoint. Um, and so, anyway, it's uh, uh, kind of important to see this bigger picture of ourselves. It helps us to know how to live these lives. And and again, that's the most crucial aspect of the lesson offered by studying near death experiences and the lessons they bring. Is not what happens when I die. But how am I to become uh, and act like the, the kind of growing, maturing, uh, evolving spiritual being that I came to this world to be? And all of us are in that same process. No soul left behind. Do you ever find yourself, um, when you look back on the experience, um, so I read in your book that in some uh, instances during your coma, you were, say, thrashing or moving moving about involuntarily so they had to then sedate you uh, to keep you calm do you ever question if whether during those periods perhaps the deeper levels of your brain were active to a point where they could produce such an experience well that's that's certainly a possibility uh i mean the 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 biggest problem with it is other than um, having a Glasgow coma scale of around 11 early on in the experience and i don't remember any of that uh, for example, that uh, time in, in the book where I talked about uh, kind of I've been groaning and moaning for hours and my uh, former spouse and my uh, Episcopal uh, uh, priest were outside the door and they overheard all this. They heard me scream out, God help me. Uh, and there were many witnesses to that. And I was told about it much later, but I have zero memory of it. But yes, that could represent a point where my neocortex was still functioning enough for something to happen. But very rapidly, I went from that deep into coma. Uh, and, and the evidence is there that neurologic exams uh, multiple times daily, Glasgow coma scale of, you know, six to seven, it's sometimes probably as low as five, uh, especially given the CT and MRI data that all eight lobes of my brain were affected, my brain stem was badly damaged. I mean, not, not only did I have that Glasgow coma scale, but I was also lacking what's called the oculocardiac reflex, which is a tiebreaker for very deep coma. And when you lose that, you're really in trouble. And mine was gone. 
So, uh, you know, how to make sense of that? Uh, um, I mean, your point's a good one. There, there were some times when I first got in that ER when maybe there was enough of my neocortex left to do something, but it was so rapidly destroyed. And also in, in the appendices to uh, Proof of Heaven, I discuss uh, all the, the, the uh, scientific theories we entertain to explain my coma, including um, you know, some differential effect on the layering, the six layer uh, neocortex um, to try and postulate how um, some kind of conscious experience could emerge. But the problem is the neuroanatomy doesn't support it at all. And the kind of damage I had to the surface very rapidly inactivates the kind of uh, uh, network connections that you can see more broadly throughout the neocortex. So um, that's why the kind of severe bacterial meningitis I had is a perfect model for human death. That's why it's, it's crucial that this case report came out and uh, what the scientific community is so fascinated by my case is because it goes much further than most cases of NDEs because of the very nicely documented damage to my neocortex that gets rid of any simplistic pseudo explanation of, well, you know, maybe these things kind of happen. Uh, forget about it. Uh, they don't happen when you have that kind of brainstem and cortical damage and then have this full recovery. How do you explain that? Mm. Just coming back to the, the guy that I interviewed who had the possible explanation. Um, so at that point in which the neocortex is not functioning, um, I'm sorry. What you're you're referring to an interview you had, or yeah, I've just uh, he's the only kind of skeptical person I interviewed who came came across with these and these the explanations he said to me seemed yeah somewhat plausible, worth looking into. And now that I've got a neurosurgeon to ask, it's perfect because um, I know little to nothing about the brain. <laughs> sorry, my sorry, that's gone. That's all right. Okay, no problem. Sorry, we can get so, back. So yeah. Cause, um, because I rarely get to talk to neurosurgeons and my knowledge about the brain is little to none. You wouldn't want me anywhere near your brain. So now it's a perfect opportunity to ask um, about his his possibility. So um, is, is there any possibility that during that stage of which your brain, your neocortex is, is not active, that there is any function for um, the brain to create memories on the lower level of, of operation or any kind of experience? Well, it really doesn't make any sense at all because every bit of our knowledge about what we see, what we hear about section, which is kind of our planning and understanding of the our linguistic brain. Have to be fully high uh, one astonishing thing is that I have any memories at all, much less a robust set of memories that haven't dissipated at all over, over, over 10 years. Um, so in effect, that it's a nonsensical argument. Uh, for example, when we dream, uh, if we, uh, you know, there are parts of the brain that will light up showing the activity we're doing uh, in our mind is uh, similar to what we'd be doing if we were similarly acting in the physical world. Uh, so when you take out the neocortex, none of that is remains possible anymore. There are deeper structures in the brain. And again, th those uh, uh, were covered in that appendix in proof of heaven, like down in the thalamus, basal ganglia, other possible centers where any of this could have happened. And yet it it's in 
really makes no sense whatsoever that the most ultra real experience with the most detailed conscious awareness of everything I'm seeing, feeling, experiencing, being, uh, knowing, um, could happen when all those most relevant parts of the brain that neuroscience has studied, you know, for more than a century to, to identify with those particular actions is demonstrably shut down. It just makes no sense. Uh, I mean, you're really reaching for straws, especially scientifically, to come up with such a nonsensical, uh, unrelated kind of hypothesis. Mm. That's why I wanted to ask, because you'd, you'd know a lot more about that than I do. So it's just to just to clarify whether that would be possible or not. And it oh. it's kind of counteracts the idea that maybe your experience took place as, as your brain was either going into coma or recovering from, because even so, your brain was still riddled with that uh, bacterial meningitis where the it's important to point real. out uh, the importance of those six faces that I described in Proof of Heaven that I saw at the very end of the coma. Uh, I mean, this experience to me, if you'd asked me in those first few days, how long were you there? Months? Years? It was an extraordinary, detailed, long-lived journey with multiple passages through all, all those realms. Uh, and, but, and yet at the end of it, I was kind of shut out of the ability to reascend to those levels. Uh, and that's when I saw the six faces kind of bubble up out of the muck. Uh, and that was also at a time when I witnessed thousands of beings around me going off into the distance. And I remember them with their heads down, this murmuring energy coming from them. Uh, and what I called that in my early writings was that they were praying. So I was sensing this very powerful effect of, of people praying for my well-being. And uh, it was the six faces, though, that are important here because uh, five of those were people who were physically present, loved ones, family, and friends, at the bedside the last 24 hours of my coma. So basically, those faces, to me, put the entire majority of the journey that seemed to last so long, uh, all in the first days one to five. And I, I explain all that. Um, uh, you know, the, the, one of those faces was also of Susan Wrenches. She was a family friend who had written a book called Third Eye Open. She was never physically within 120 miles of my ICU bed, but she was a close family friend. She had worked with coma patients before, and my family uh, solicited her help, and she very kindly channeled to me on the fourth and fifth nights of my coma. And her presence to me was as clear as that of those other faces who were physically present at the very end. Um, and they helped to provide what are called veridical time anchors uh, to show that the vast majority of my coma occurred when I was deep in coma, when my Glasgow coma scale was low, when my uh, uh, oculocardiac reflex was gone and a scan showed all that tremendous damage to my neocortex and even a brainstem that was, was uh, malfunctioning at that time. And so those faces are very crucial because they actually help us to time this and disprove uh, those kind of pseudo-skeptical uh, arguments that, uh, you know, this all happened when I was waking up uh, or maybe that it happened when I was going in. Uh, and those are, are far uh, less sustainable arguments given uh, the much bigger picture and especially what I experienced. Um, and that's why especially identifying that guardian angel uh, towards the end was so crucial, you know, and that was a recognition that uh, occurred four months after I woke up from coma. Hmm. There are also plenty of um, examples of relevant time anchors and experiences in Tita Srivas' book. Absolutely. Self Does Not Die, as well brilliant. as... They're beautiful, and they uh, if that book doesn't open your 
uh, mind to the reality of all this, I don't know what will. But mm. uh, there are several other books I would highly recommend for those who are interested. Living in Mindful Universe, obviously, the one Karen and I wrote, uh, but also The End of Upside Down Thinking by Mark Gober uh, is an excellent book that really gets into this so scientific revolution in beautiful ways. Um, I also recommend uh, Spiritual Science uh, by Steve Taylor uh, out of England. It's a beautiful, scientifically erudite book that really talks about uh, how our the modern science is absolutely of a spiritual nature and we're spiritual beings. I mean, this is something we talk about all the time. And I think Steve does a great job in his book. Uh, of course, the beautiful books out of University of Virginia, Ed Kelly. Uh, these are for the more scientifically minded. They are deep and profound reads. Uh, Irreducible Mind, 2008, I believe. And then uh, the follow-up to that, uh, Beyond Physicalism, written in 2015. And all of these are profound kind of wake-up calls. Uh, in fact, if you go to my reading list, evanalexander.com, there's a recommended reading list has more than 100 books and scientific papers, many of them with actual links you can follow directly to the paper. Uh, they're all categorized and also prioritized by my favorites leading the pack. And uh, uh, Ed Kelly and his work is just, uh, I think it's the work of the century. I mean, uh, these are scientists at UVA. They've done an incredible job, but it is not for the kind of light of heart. Uh, these are deep scientific slogs that, uh, uh, reveal to anybody who's willing to take the journey that if, if you uh, doubt afterlife and, and reincarnation, you're basically just willfully ignorant. Uh, the data is absolutely there. Um, a simpler path is our living in a mindful universe. It's uh, very straightforward and, and, and brings together many of the different facets uh, of the argument supporting the primacy of consciousness and objective uh, idealism. Also, for those of you more interested in the quantum physics aspect, I would lead you to the work of Bernardo Castro. Uh, he's a big endorser of living in a mindful universe. He works at CERN. His uh, uh, knowledge of philosophy and quantum physics is uh, uh, impeccable. Uh, and he's written a whole series of articles in Scientific American uh, that he kind of sneaked in the door that basically uh, strongly support scientifically the reality of objective idealism, that there's this mental layer of the universe I talked about a little while ago that is the way it all works. And we're all connected with that. Whereas sentient beings, we have a connection with that mental layer. And this is why this awakening is so absolutely crucial. Uh, but Bernardo recently wrote a book that summarized many of his papers. That book is called The Idea of the World. Uh, for those of you who have a, a reasonable uh, scientific uh, quantum physics philosophical education, that book is a goldmine. Uh, it takes us uh, much further towards uh, uh, deep truth along the lines that we argue in Living in a Mindful Universe. But he's building the bridge very specifically for those who are versed in quantum physics and the philosophical and metaphysical challenges uh, presented by quantum physics. Hmm. I'd also add to the um, to your reading list this one as well, which I know you're familiar with, the uh, Galileo Commission Report. Oh, absolutely. Also uh, very important. Manifesto. People can go to GalileoCommission.org. I highly recommend that. I have put that out hundreds of times in my talks and interviews. Um, I'm one of the 100-plus scientific advisors to the Galileo Commission, uh, and... Uh, I cannot tell you how refreshing it was to me after I had my experience. Those first two years were very kind of confusing and trying to find my way. And then I realized there was this gigantic 
uh, community of scientists around the world, the deep thinkers, the real uh, scientific minds who were far along this pathway. And my first discovery of that was really Ed Kelly and that work at UVA DOPS. Uh, I gave a talk there, Bruce Grayson invited me. It was literally two years to the hour of my waking up from coma that he had invited me up there. I thought that was a suitable kind of celebration of that birthday. Um, and then they gave me a copy of the Irreducible Mind. And I had not heard of the book before then, but I read it and my gosh, wow. Uh, this is a scientific revolution, first and fundamentally. And that is what will take it to the next level. Uh, as I said earlier, we've had 5,000 years for religious systems based on uh, uh, basically the spiritual escapades of seekers and prophets and mystics uh, coded into various religious orthodoxies. Very important to realize that all of our religions and their deep mystical traditions are in agreement about oneness, about love, about compassion, about mercy. They all agree. And it is time to let go of this simplistic nonsense of religious orthodoxies battling with each other over which one has the better description of God. Near-death experiencers all support the reality of a fundamental relationship of, the, of these uh, of religious, uh, around the concepts and around the emotional truths that we can all experience in deep meditation, in spontaneous epiphanies, uh, in centering prayer, uh, of this connectedness and of this loving force. Uh, and it is something that near-death experiences are not at all equivocal about. Uh, they very strongly support uh, the power of love and that we're all interconnected. And that's what matters in our daily lives. That's the deepest lesson of NDEs. And by ha having the scientific support of the neuroscience of consciousness, philosophy of mind, quantum physics, uh, by the consilience of the agreement of understanding a primacy of consciousness and all of these uh, powerful scientific approaches to understanding reality, um, this is what will change the world for the better. Mm -hmm. And it'll happen pretty it soon, I'd imagine. It is happening. As you say, I know a lot of people, especially folks like Bruce Grayson, very interesting people. Some, I'd love to, to have a chance to speak to him. But Yeah, Bruce is an amazing guy. Yeah. He's now, uh, uh, he's done more work in, in my mind as an MD uh, to kind of support and define the reality of this. And he's very... He's an open-minded skeptic. That's what it takes to do this. So is Ed Kelly. That's what makes them such strong scientific investigators. They are not going to buy into a bunch of BS and, and blown smoke. You know, they, they want the facts, and that's why their scientific investigation of this is so crucial. And Bruce has recently retired from his full-time work and is now writing his memoir, which I hope will be a, a worldwide bestseller because I think it's going to reveal some of the deep personal truths that he's come to in the scientific investigation that will be very, very helpful to the world at large. Hmm. And one thing that really did impress me about Mr. Grayson is that I recently read a paper that he recently published on looking at the um, the, the possible neurochemical um, causes of NDEs and came uh, with the, I can't remember exactly, it was a it was an analysis of the language that people use to describe NDEs and came to the conclusion that there seems to be a possible link. And uh -huh. the reason that impressed me is because, well, that shows that he's looking at both sides with equal importance as oh, opposed absolutely. to just the proponent I mean, that's side. What a scientist does. I mean, exactly. I was my own worst skeptic. 
when I came out of coma. Now, remember that most of my neuroscience knowledge was not yet available to me. That took about two months to come back. But to me, it was way too real to be real. And even though I didn't have any scientific knowledge at the time when I came back, I was trying to explain to my doctors and they would pat me on the back and say, oh, you were very, very sick. Your brain was soaking in pus. We have no idea how you're coming back to us. But the dying brain plays all kinds of tricks. So I just thought I believe my doctors like we do. I thought, OK, dying brain plays all kinds of tricks. And, and that's I remember telling my son, Evan IV, who was majoring in neuroscience in college at the time, when he came home for Thanksgiving, uh, day before Thanksgiving, two days after I got out, out of the hospital, after my coma journey, and I said that to him. It was way too real to be real. And he gave me the best advice I've ever gotten. He said, write down everything you can remember before you read anyone else's near-death experience. He knew that every time we revisit a memory, we change it. Uh, memories weaken with time. So I wrote down everything I could remember, about 20,000 words over six weeks. Uh, and only then did I start reading the near-death experience literature. And that's when I was blown away because I started realizing all the similarities, which far outweighed the differences. I mean, they are absolutely revealing an alternate realm that is much richer and more profound in our existence than this world. Uh, and that's what it feels like when you live it. Um, so, but the good news is you don't have to die to know everything I know about this, a, a, a committed program of dedicated, uh, meditation going within, uh, daily for years. I promise you, you will come to the same knowing, uh, it depends on how you, you guide those, uh, explorations and what questions you ask of the universe, because a lot of this, remember, we're not thinking our way to the answers. Uh, the little linguistic voice in our, in our brain is not who we are. That running stream of thoughts. I love how Michael Singer calls that running stream of thoughts in our consciousness our annoying roommate. That's the best way to look at it uh, because that is not your pathway to truth. And in fact, in deep meditation using sacred acoustics, the first thing I do is I let that linguistic voice in my head uh, state a request, uh, ask a, you know, a question of the universe. But then that little voice goes into timeout because within our consciousness, especially as we traverse that veil and connect with primordial mind, is far greater wisdom. I mean, creators throughout history, like uh, Thomas Alva Edison, the greatest inventor in American history, who founded GE and in invented hundreds of things we still use today. Uh, he had a technique for using weights so his hands would drop. He'd get these hypnagogic uh, micro naps when he was in the lab. And that's where he got his great insights. Uh, Albert Einstein would drift around in a sailboat looking up at the sky daydreaming. He's the one who said "Imagination, uh, knowledge is nothing. Imagination is everything. Because our imagination, our mind is what opens the door. And uh, people, Robert Louis Stevenson, the, the great Scottish uh, novelist, poet, musician, uh, a novelist. Uh, many of his great ideas were gleaned through techniques similar uh, to Edison's in getting into that hypnagogic space. So, you know, uh, creativity and accessing primordial mind has always been a way of kind of leapfrogging in, in our thinking and understanding beyond the, the slow plotting of a rational, logical, egotistical, linguistic brain. So this is all about techniques to broaden that connection. And I would say that uh, in essence, we're tapping into the same forces that are active, uh, say, uh, uh, when people are using psilocybin, uh, magic mushrooms uh, in a therapeutic setting to address fear of cancer in, in, in uh, 
fear of death in cancer patients or to address uh, alcoholism and tough addictions like nicotine and opiates. Psilocybin is proving to be very powerful there in one dose, in one therapeutic session, can last for months or years in treating addictions and fear of death. And in, from my point of view, every bit of that is tapping into the same kind of forces we have available to us in deep meditation. We're tra traversing the veil, uh, identifying with our higher soul, bringing those healing forces uh, into this world. I mean, the same can be said for placebo effect. Again, I, I said a little while ago, that's acknowledged by medical science is absolutely real, showing us our beliefs have a dominant power in controlling our health mm. and healing. Uh, and, and all of yeah. this is related. Uh, meditation and traversing that veil is deeply related to accessing higher soul. I would say uh, the success of Alcoholics Anonymous and 12-step programs where they say, turn it over to a higher power. Well, that higher power obviously is not your little ego mind. That's what got you in trouble in the first place. But the higher power is our higher soul. And that is something we can develop a relationship with. So every bit of what we've talked about for the last hour and a half involves uh, really invoking that higher soul power and becoming more whole, healing ourselves and our world. That is what we need to do. Hmm. So as a, as a final thought for those that are faced with the rampant skepticism that they see online, especially the near-death experiences and, and astral projectors, if you want to use that term, that are, are mostly afraid of sharing their experience for fear of ridicule, oh, what, no. would you, what would you say to them when they're faced with the likes of the Shermers and the Stephen Novellas and the James Randys of the, of the scientific community? Uh, as, a, as someone who has really researched this stuff, what would you say to them? It's very simple. Go with your heart, follow the truth. It's really simple. And, you know, the pseudo-skeptics will evaporate. I mean, already I've seen my interviews five and six years ago, uh, all the journalists were scrambling to find, you know, some uh, materialist scientist who would debate, debate me. And they've evaporated. They're either doing the homework and realizing they were previously willfully ignorant uh, or, um, you know, they just disappeared. It doesn't matter. The world will follow the truth. The arc, uh, the long arc of humanity follows justice and bends towards truth. And that's exactly what's going to come out from everyone sharing these stories. In fact, I think one of the biggest gifts of putting uh, proof of heaven out there uh, was to help take the lid off, you know, let the medical profession, the scientific side of the medical profession, wake up to the reality of this. And then everybody starts sharing these stories widely. And, <clears throat> you know, the pseudo-skeptics can go play with themselves, you know, whatever. Uh, but sooner or later, the world is going to wake up to this much deeper truth. And it's very important for the health and healing of our very fractured and polarized world. And I think that's a great place to end. I think so. So, I appreciate uh, your interview and thank you for getting this out to the world. Uh, it's very important. And I certainly look forward to engaging uh, with many of your listeners when they approach us through uh, ebonalexander.com, sacredacoustics.com, uh, intersanctumcenter.com and other efforts to get this out to the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, my audience is incredibly small, but even one person to, uh, hey, to get involved. I'll take is... One soul is plenty for me. <laughs> You know, Brilliant. we change the world uh, one soul at a time, and that works. Perfect. Okay, well, thank you, Doctor. I appreciate your time and your willingness right. to Thanks come on and speak with you. Thank you. You too. All Take right. care now.
Bye-bye. Keep safe. Bye-bye. You, you too.